Welcome to The Real Work, a podcast about opening access to career success and workplace belonging for everyone. Presented to you by the team at Lantern Rouge. Through these community conversations, we want to learn and share how careers actually work and how we show up for each other in all manners of professions, unpacking the experiences that shape us and how we can each play a role in designing our future of work. Here is your host, Alex Lamb, an organizational psychologist and the chief executive of Lantern Rouge. Okay, so welcome, Sophie. It's great to have you. Hi. Oh, well, it's really good to be here. So thank you for asking me. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Um, So just before we jump in, our last guest was an attorney named Sanya Goff, who uh, she works on pension reform in Jamaica. And we had this fantastic conversation about um, the cultural factors that are kind of impacting how people look towards uh, their retirement planning in that market. And she had a gift for you. She wanted you to know for this conversation, be relaxed, be yourself, because it's a great opportunity to showcase um, your profession really honestly so you know that's from Sanya to you I know what an amazing thing to have said so thanks Sanya that really helps because I think it's easy to feel really overwhelmed sometimes when you feel the world is a bit bigger than you and you don't really know I can be a bit of a frightened rabbit I feel like that a lot I don't know why a rabbit is who I feel like but often like just this frightened being who's a bit scared of all the steps that I see ahead of me so it's useful to hear yeah. stuff like that do you know, I saw some rabbits on my run this morning just to get it picked off. <laughs> so I can reflect on what I saw of rabbits. They were actually pretty, like, um, they were very healthy on my run. They were abundant. Obviously, they're everywhere, but quick as a flash. So I get the I get the message that you're saying. <laughs> you can dart in any direction. So let me see how we go. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we get kicked off then with the, the, the concept of going in any direction? Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about, like, What's life like for you at the moment in, in work and in and out of work? What are some of the decisions that are right in front of you at the moment? Well, there's no straightforward answer, but I don't um, mm. I'm I'm aware that I can't I don't want to spend all of our time answering just one question. So I think if I start with the positive, so I think at the moment I feel like since I completed my PhD, which is about four or five years ago now. I've been working very hard to try and build a voice in the cultural and creative industries um, and just kind of following my nose and seeing what challenges are in front of me and what I fancy doing and doing lots of different stuff. And I feel now it's started to go really, really well, but I feel a bit overwhelmed by how many options there are there. And I have a tendency still to say yes to lots and lots of things and then Mm. just hope I'll figure it out later and because of coronavirus and what happened a lot of those opportunities suddenly stopped or they stalled for a little while Mm. and that's been consistent in lots of industries but particularly you know I've really noticed it in the cultural sector like everyone sort of was paralyzed very quickly in terms of there's suddenly not being money and lots of anxieties around what was going to be possible and not possible actually six months has gone past and I've managed to sort of recalibrate and everything's on the table again. In fact, more than there was before, because it feels like at the moment there's a need more than ever for really clear thinking around what's happening Mm. and how the pandemic and the post-pandemic world is making us unpick and pull apart our cultural institutions. And so suddenly I'm now feeling really overwhelmed again and a bit bit railroaded, actually, that I feel like there's a lot Mm. of 
demand for con- for me to generate content a lot of the time. And while I love doing that, and it's what I want to do, sometimes you can be so busy saying yes that you don't have time to think about what you even want to say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're kind of going going with the momentum of this moment as opposed to feeling like you're driving it. Yeah, mm. I think so a little bit. But then, you know, on the other hand, I feel so privileged that there's so many people in my sector and elsewhere that have lost work or been furloughed indefinitely or whatever. And I actually feel like, because I've always been freelance and contract based and worked for multiple clients at once, um, that I'm still doing really interesting stuff. I'm being called upon a lot at the moment. I feel like it's in some ways it's the freelancers moment right now, um, which is a real mixed blessing. So yeah, so that's so I think on a daily basis at the moment I'm feeling like I'm treading water really quickly. Mm. Mm. Um but then at the same time feeling kind of excited and privileged to be doing so even though I regularly feel and we might come on to this later I suspect but I regularly regularly feel like I almost have to start my day again. Normally about 11 a.m things start feeling really overwhelming <laughs> and I just have You've to got go to regroup. Yeah, yeah. I'm like oh god hang on which you know because I have three university inboxes at the moment for example so I'm suddenly like <gasps> and I get myself in a real panic yeah. and then I just have to go well hang on breath another cafetiere of coffee <laughs> so if you what you know just back up a second it's okay yeah day, start the day again so. collect your thoughts mm. and it sounds like there there's this I mean, it sounds like even before this moment, you had a kind of, you were grappling with this idea of what to say yes, what to say no, where's my boundary, how do I, you know, and and even more so now, it sounds like there's a appreciation and with appreciation comes along maybe a little bit of guilt or concern or a risk that if I say no, will I continue to get work? (laughs) Is this a blessing that I need to make hay while the sun shines or, you know, should I be creating those boundaries? So, that that conversation you have with yourself at 11am when you reset your agenda (laughs) and that's kind of in a micro but then thinking about how you zoom that out to month on month or even just reflecting on this whole year what is that conversation you have in your mind about setting boundaries and what to say yes to and what to say no to what what are the factors that are kind of playing into that for you um I think I'm still learning how to be more strategic with with how I think Mm. in those key moments. I think, you know, and and I'm, I I can sometimes, you know, my kind of my end goal, if I have a goal, like I said, is kind of to, to become a sort of stronger and clearer voice in the Mm. cultural industries for, for cultural justice and access to the arts for everyone, basically. And that's like the big picture. And so I think what I'm trying to learn to do better is when an opportunity comes along or someone wants me to write something else or say something else or pitch for something or other else, I have to quite quickly say, okay, does it fit in with that big mm-hmm. agenda? Of will, and, and sometimes that feels very quite a selfish thing, like, will this make my voice bigger? Mm, no, then don't do it. But then often you have to then learn, even if the, the answer to that question is the immediately no, often there's all these other reasons why it would be good to do something, right? So it would mean I could meet so-and-so in that organization or they would give me a bit of recognition or... 
So I think by the end, sometimes I end up just saying yes to everything. Because even if the first question is like, no, it's not going to give you the end goal, but it's going to give you all this other stuff. Um, So I guess that's what's going through my mind. But I think at the same time, I have learned recently to be a bit braver about saying what I want when I say yes. Mm, So I'll still say yes, but I will set my terms a bit stronger than I have before. And I think I'm better at valuing myself and what I have to offer. So, yeah. And I, and I, I think this is easy for me to say as like a 35 year old female, but then that's kind of part of it. Like, I don't think that doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah. So how did it come? Is it just a matter of experience or? so I think I'm out mm. of experience and and luckily being surrounding myself when I can by people who give me really good feedback and asking for mm-hmm. that feedback so for example I've got um sorry that was my email sorry I'm sorry I haven't turned it off Alex I okay do, do you need to go through and turn it off or is, is no okay? no don't it's, worry I can't hear your email no oh problem. oh you didn't hear it sorry so that's <laughs> yeah. me just no. like ad-libbing about emails um <laughs> sorry um Uh, I'm really lucky that I've got a few people around me in senior positions who have given me me really sound qualifying advice. Um, Mm. And I feel that, and I know that can be quite rare, especially in sectors like mine, which are kind of fiercely competitive and and Mm. everyone's fighting for work a lot of the time and there's not much money to go around. And um, I've got one boss in particular who I've worked with for a couple of years at Leicester and he is a middle-aged professor and kind of is very textbook in that sense. But I've learned a lot from him in that he um, is really keen to bring new voices up and he really has mm. spent a lot of time nurturing me. And that's been mm. really helpful because I think that's that then goes both ways. Um, and I've become better at doing that to other people and weirdly to him as well. Yeah. Um, reverse mentoring. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. Reverse mentoring. Mm. Exactly. And I'm not sure how he'd feel about me saying that, but hey, <laughs> <laughs> he's not here. Well, that's the, the best mentoring relationships aren't ones where you kind of walk up and say, Hey, do you want to be my mentor? Or Hey, can I reverse? Like they kind of occur a bit more naturally, don't they? And organically. So Often yeah. you don't put a label on it or formalize it, you know, there's no contract for and that's the challenge that we see inside organizations when they try to create more mentoring really um because we all know the power of it, like you're saying. But when it's manufactured, it can sometimes be quite tough to get the value from. But it sounds like you're just seeing these things naturally bubble up in your space. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I think so. I think so. yeah, definitely. And I think um I think because of because of these a few people in my life who I've respected, who I've then asked for kind of qualification from. And I've done, you know, there's, there's been just a few key things where I've been like, wow, I achieved that. And I never thought I could have done that. Um, mm. I've got that. That's, that's when I feel a bit braver about kind of setting the terms a little bit. Cause I'm kind of like, well, if yeah. you get me, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. And yeah. I definitely didn't feel like that at the beginning of my career. Mm. Was there anything like a magic line that you crossed when you finally got your PhD? Did that give you any kind of license to set those terms or, you know, was it not as cut and dry as that? It wasn't really. I think Mm. um, it's really weird. I I, I think 
the reasons I started the PhD were really different from the reasons I finished the damn thing, if I'm honest. Um, Over such a long period of time, I'm sure a lot of things changed. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and I think at that time as well, I mean, and it's, it's, it's even worse now, but getting an arts and humanities doctorate in the UK, um, does definitely does not guarantee you a job. And I don't think I realized that when I began, (laughs) but it became very apparent by the time I finished. And so that then became that the the reason for me then doing the PhD shifted and I, and it became just that I really want to learn and read and understand my subject this well. And that's what it became about really, like Mm, really getting to the bottom of something. Yeah. Mm. Um, But I think, when I finished, I think it's a really, it's a bit of a, well, it was for me anyway, a misnomer that I would then like, you know, be the butterfly coming out of the chrysalis. Actually, it was quite the opposite. I experienced probably one of the lowest periods of my life after my PhD, mm. because it's like mm. falling off a cliff. You know, you've, you've, you've self-motivated yourself for three, four, I think in my case, it took four and a half years, four years, something like that you know, into totally believing in your subject and the nuances of it. And then you you submit the thing and it's done and you get the, you know, the, the prestige of it. And then you're like, wow, I, I really don't have any meaning in my life professionally. Mm. And mm. I really felt like that. And I think it was compounded by the fact that there wasn't, there were not very many employment opportunities, straightforward employment opportunities out there. Mm. Like it was almost like the real work started once sorry and this is the real work I guess it's like the real work started once I got the piece of paper and then I was like wow now I've got to somehow legitimize that Mm. that turn it into a vocation Mm. Mm. and so what did that process look like where did you start and how did you angle in well it took me a year and a half to get my first academic appointment Mm -hmm. and that was a hard year and a half um because I luckily had a background. So while I was, and it's kind of as reflected in my bio, I guess, like I luckily had a background in arts events management and producing and operational delivery. And so that had kind of financed the PhD, really. I'd been able to, I'd gone part-time halfway through and I'd supported myself by working at the South Bank Centre, actually, in artistic events. And that Mm -hmm. had kind of help me but I think I thought in my mind I'll submit the PhD and I won't have to do this kind of work anymore I'll suddenly be paid for more of my the certain type of my brain that I wanted to be using which was the more kind of analytical side and not delivering events anymore but you know creating the ideas behind them and all that sort of stuff um and actually what I found myself doing instead was having my viva passing and then realizing there was there were really not many academic jobs in the arts on the market, and that instead I uh, had to just rely even heavier on that events background mm. and mm-hmm. just really throw myself into that, and actually took on a few contracts just to keep, you know, keep bread and butter kind of going. Um, and in a way, I think the problem that wouldn't have been an issue for me if my expectations of what I was going to do post PhD hadn't been so high, but I think because they were so Mm. high, because I thought that the world was going to, I was going to conquer the world as an academic and that just really didn't happen. And instead I was doing the same work I'd done prior to achieving the PhD. Um, I I think I, I, I faced a really 
I think I, I was really low actually and I regret yeah. that now because you mm. know when you think oh it was silly it all worked out it was fine it just needed some patience but yeah at the time it was yeah so it took a year and a half and then I got my first um academic gig which was working at King's College London in their creative industries department. And I was actually studying um, cultures of gig work, of like Uber and Deliveroo mm. for them, mm. and studying the gig economy. Um, and it was an area I didn't really, wasn't really familiar with. It's how I kind of ended up looking at digital work. I just, mm. but they had funding there. So they wanted someone to do a bit of research in order to write a big um, three-year grant um for some money to do a big project about cultures of gig work and the kind of Mm. the alternative activist culture that was springing up through precarious workers and I did that full-time for three months it was just a three-month gig ironically there was a huge irony in the fact that I was (laughs) a gig worker researching gig work in order for a university to get a lot of money (laughs) and did you become Um, an activist no (laughs) no I actually Ironically, instead, I just became this like really j- kind of suddenly jaded. Um, you know, I felt like I was a hired brain, and wasn't that where activism comes from? I think activism comes from a lot of jaded people. <laughs> yeah. So maybe your activism is yet to emerge. <laughs> maybe that's well, <laughs> and it's funny, isn't it? You're right. I think it's it's weird because I. I love the idea of activism and I'm really yeah. left-leaning and I believe very much in kind of social justice and fighting for change of multiple forms. But I don't really like calling myself an activist and I'm not sure why. Mm. I feel maybe mm. I'm just, maybe it's because I'm not, I'm never there on the picket line. Kind of, I'm always the yeah. one I think in the background often I writing. You. <laughs> I, like if I reflect on that as well, it's... um. <laughs> I found myself in the same boat and I think this is quite a funny thing because, you know, we're, we're talking into so many stereotypes right now, aren't we, of <laughs> the academic profession being, you know, lefties and whatnot. But um, I find myself the same, but I yet I feel because I'm an introvert, I get quite shy when I see um, people out in the street and particularly here in, in the US, we've got a lot of Black Lives Matter movements mm-hmm. and marches happening and, and we've been to some, like they're very, I've taken my son to some, like they're much more, sort of um, community-based ones, but then I see people who might just be walking down the street in San Francisco. San Francisco is a, you know, phenomenal place for just street marches that just seem to pop up. You know, we had one for Ruth Bader Ginsburg the other day of, you know, celebrating her her life. It's just, they just emerge. But I see them and sometimes I have to stop my car and I see whatever the topic is that people are protesting about or, or you know just trying to bring visibility to and I'm like in my heart I'm like yes 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 but like I can't even bring my face to smile at them to say I'm with you or I don't wind down the window to like wave my hand or beat my horn because I'm just so like oh how do I break this kind of social social contract of not being a disturbance <laughs> so it's, um, I'm, yeah. I'm with it like I don't know how to show people I'm there with you in heart I believe in it but actually my putting my foot out on the street is a really hard thing to mm. do no matter how hard I believe in so I'm sitting here in my little vegan shirt I don't know if you can see it <laughs> That's so great. I've got things that I really believe in like I, I believe in not you know I believe in environmentalism and and you know behaving the way like acting the way that you want to see the world become but it, so anyway that's just a reflection to you is that mm. I don't associate with being an activist either and yet I kind of have these strong beliefs that <laughs> but then it puts all of this responsibility on other people to make changes so 
Well, yeah. <laughs> I, what do you think I, yeah, I, no, I totally agree with you. And I think I'm the same. Like I really shy away from protest marches. I mean, it's, mm. that's great that you took your son to one and it's, and I really believe in them. And I, but I, but I also think that we're maybe doing ourselves, and maybe needs me being kind of over-compassionate, self-compassionate, but like, we're probably doing a disservice by saying just because we're not on the street there doesn't mean we're not doing it. Cause I think I try and practice say equality or like equal rights or nurturing people from the ground up or dismantling hierarchies that are ugly mm. when I see them or trying to have, my, mm-hmm. I try and do it in different ways. And I think yeah. that's the thing. Um, believing in stuff and being an activist maybe I'm gonna like change right now and say right I am an activist but like (laughs) it it doesn't have to be like you said it doesn't have to be the stereotypical thing of you know um it can also be really subtle and daily Mm -hmm. and a, a practice and and I and I like to think that I try and do that in all my work now so how does it come through like where what would be an example of that of maybe a hierarchy that you've buffed up against or, you know, a way that you've dismantled something? Well, I'd say, I'd say kind of the most classic example is in the podcast that you mentioned, actually. So I put together um, a, a three series now. We were about to come out. Our, our third series is about to come out. Um of a podcast about a museum service in Brighton called Royal Pavilion and Museums. And it's actually, there's five sites, there's five venues. The Royal Pavilion, which is kind of very iconic, is one. But then there's also lots of other museums all run by the local council. They've just now moved to independent trust. Um, and the backstory kind of is that in in my in all of my work, really, since the PhD, all of it has consisted in going into larger or smaller cultural organizations and trying to understand how they operate from the inside and the kinds of invisible power structures that are in place, Mm -hmm. how staff at all different levels feel about creativity and participation and how that impacts then on the culture that the organization produces. Mm. And so you're doing organizational psychology. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And I think there's, it's weird, isn't it? Because in my field they might call it it's kind of sociology of art they call it or sociology of cultural work but but you see it's funny how we 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 like protect ourselves with these languages but it's exactly this discourse but it's the same problem of categorization but I'm so comfortable with the intersectionality but I mean anytime (laughs) you're doing a culture there's always a sociology and then a yeah and and even like an economic (laughs) angle to it as well so yeah yeah well yeah and I think and I'm sure you've seen this a lot in your work too, that in big cultural organisations, the ones I've worked in, and even small ones, there's always a really fierce hierarchical structure, which is often a legacy of many of the previous years of being run like that and since they were formed. And often those structures are really, really um, destabilising for any kind of exciting things to happen. Mm. And so... When I was doing the project with the Royal Pavilion and Museums, they specifically wanted me to look at um, how digital could enable more staff to tell stories about the museum and its objects. And so I spent quite a lot of time just kind of hanging around and talking to staff and trying to trying to elicit what they really felt and actually what what came out through all the workshops and stuff I held, I kind of held with them was that 
there was a lot of fear around saying the wrong thing because there was a mm. real strong like party line and they didn't they wanted the whole organization most people wanted to really reflect the, the vibrant amazing exciting community of Brighton but they felt really stultified and they couldn't because of these structures that have been in place for years mm. and so in order to challenge that in a more subtle way rather than kind of you know throwing red paint on the on the powers that be yeah. We, um, we we did we we what I called um what I ended up kind of called it I called it like a con, kind of a consensual like a consensus led content process basically where uh, it was a staff led podcast and I was had lots of volunteers that work in the sector as well and in museums it's often run mainly by volunteers and so I call it voices of the Royal Pavilion in museums because I interviewed everyone from a volunteer of 25 years standing to the chief exec, to the keeper of the Royal Pavilion, who, you know, was a, a very, an incredibly knowledgeable, illustrious guy who really had the narrative in his, the palm of his hand of the institution. And I really wanted to democratize all these voices to put them next to each other so that the voice of the gardener of the Royal Pavilion Gardens, for example, who is the most, you know, wizened intelligent spiritual uh, kind of incredible sage like mm -hmm. bloke next to <laughs> someone who you would who you would ordinarily think or society might ordinarily think would have all the answers the keys to the kingdom of that cultural organization such as the chief executive or the a chief curator or something like that and I and I guess in a way you know and I haven't thought about it in these terms but it was an activist project, really, because a lot of those people who had the more marginalised voices didn't really want to talk to me. They were fearful. They didn't believe they had anything interesting to say. They couldn't see necessarily what, you know, they, you know, often we're, those hierarchies, they play out because everyone subscribes to them, right? And mm -hmm. I think I was trying to say, no, there's a different way, a more exciting way we could think about this organization and its relevance for Brighton and beyond the relevance of the culture and the history it, it houses. Um, and it was, and it was really, it was really successful, but it was also, I learned a lot, a lot about, mm -hmm. a lot about how important it is to nurture people actually. And mm. um, also that this stuff takes a lot of time, you know, it's it. And I guess then I'm defending myself on this activist point again, but it's not a case of going to one march on a Saturday and saying, right, I've done my bit yeah. now for BLM <laughs> yeah. or for, so yeah, obvious. it was, yeah, it was kind of like I had to, you know, and it was a privilege to, it was a really privilege to be in the position where I could, but like, you know, spend quite a few hours and many emails sometimes hand-holding someone into believing that they had something worthwhile saying and that there were people that wanted to hear it. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that's a wonderful example. I really like it. And in, in my space, we call it psychological safety. I don't know if that's mm. a term that you bumped across. but No, it's really a lovely term, though. I'm going to write it down. Yeah. How do you create the, the vibe or the atmosphere where people feel like they can have a voice is essentially what you're saying. And first of all, sometimes you have to invite people into conversation, but then recognise and acknowledge when they do make a contribution, value the diversity and the perspectives so that it's not, you know, one person's opinion against another. It's like how do we converge these because we genuinely believe that it's creating a bigger whole or a yeah. more 
you know, rich whole perspective. So I think a lot of people struggle. And, and as you say, there's a hierarchical aspect to it. And so often we find in an organisation you have to use that leader as the catalyst to role model asking people's opinions, getting everybody on a call or everybody in a room whenever we're in rooms, um, getting all of their perspectives, making sure that everybody's spoken. And what we find a lot of the time is that the leader has the first go and says, what do you all think? <laughs> and people come back and they're like, mm, we don't think anything. And then the leader walks away and says, well, it didn't work. I followed Alex's da 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 but then them having to come back and be much more explicit. Jimmy, what's your opinion on X, Y, Z? Or Jenny, what's your, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? And then sort of reinforcing it and giving it the time to nurture that people will gradually start to layer in and giving the, the leader that kind of the, the radar to sense, ah, that was a piece of input. How am I going to acknowledge and recognise and in some ways reward that so that I'm feeding that, that energy and inviting more of it in? So what, yeah. what do you do? Like now that you've had that experience and you're able to, to unfurl hopefully what sounds like a bit of confidence from people in all levels of a concept, how does that get sustained? How does it live on after mm. you maybe finish your project and pack up your toolkit? And <laughs> yeah, that's, that was, I mean, that's something I haven't totally reconciled and I'll, mm. I and I'll, and I maybe that fits in with next steps for my life as well thinking about how I can do more long-term change projects but mm. something you were saying Alex I don't know if you've read this book Diffusion of Innovation by Everett no. Rogers I mean I'd never come across him before he was um a 1960s agricultural I mean I don't even know a scientist agriculture yeah I guess mm. and he was really interested in how farmers um and farmlands in america um uh, now let me get this right in the 1960s how they adopted new innovations in best farming practice particularly around the use of pesticides and stuff like that at that Mm. time and he spent years and years and years studying this and he came up with this idea around what does it take for an an innovation a new idea to translate and evolve and change and he called it the diffusion of innovation this is book it's now in it's like eighth edition and it's sort of worldwide and it's it's so good but he he it's really good for many reasons and I use it quite a lot he um argues that that leader role that you just said is um he describes it as I think he calls it an innovation agent but I think I would just Mm -hmm. call it an agent of change but this person I've, I've, I've been, I've thought a lot about, am I this person? What is it? Do I help make those people self-evident? <laughs> um, mm. But he, but they, they play a really nuanced role in an organization and often, and like you said, they can be in leadership positions or they're somehow impartial, but they, they have to have like a multiple amount of like sort of soft skills as well as like mm. hard characteristics as well. Like they have yeah. to garner respect, but they also have to have loads of time. They also have to be quite fiercely analytical and be able to quick make quick jump judgments, all of this sort of stuff. And I think in that Brighton example, I played that agent of change, that innovation agent. Um, but to what extent did that carry on once I left? Exactly what you said. Mm, and that's the same. Actually. That. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think on some levels, it's fine just to accept that you sow some seeds of a new type of spirit. And then it's up to that organization and that group of people at that moment to carry on. Mm -hmm. And I know with the Brighton example, 
that there became a heightened um, energy around self-generated content and that a lot of the stuff have gone on to create their own stuff. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, in a, I also hope in a really individual way that certain of those individuals just felt better about their work mm-hmm. by doing that. Yeah. And that's enough. Mm-hmm. Valued. Mm. But I think your to your point about, um, you know, what's like, what's the legacy? I don't think I've reconciled that because I still feel like my job for the most part at the moment is about being quite critical and then, you know, like I keep using this word nurturing of these organizations and trying to be, be kind of usefully critical in order to help them get better. But it's quite, I'm a, I, I parachute in and out and there's something that doesn't sit well with me about that. Um, but I haven't really worked out what the solution is, you know, is mm. it, is it one day, I kind of hope maybe it will be leading my own venue of some description. But then even then, then there's all those other venues out there <laughs> that that maybe need innovation. Oh, it's innovation champions. That's the term Rogers uses. Innovation yeah. champions. So I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's, it's cultivating a spirit maybe and doing it often mm-hmm. enough in enough organizations in your sector that something... Big, a bigger wave happens and maybe yeah. you just have to sit with that being as good as it can be at the moment yeah and there's a time continuum to this as well I'm sure you don't come in plant those seeds and then immediately say all right I'm done here let me move on there's a how what is that 6 12 you know 36 month kind of yeah. touch point to understand where have these things gone on to and of course those people you work with I'm sure in some of the smaller smaller sectors or smaller regional areas they might be in that venue for their career um but in some of the bigger centers you know they might move on to other venues or they might be gig workers who then go and take that little bit of culture with them across the industry so so as you say if you can spark that in other people and then they become the you know the soldiers that go out into the (laughs) into the rest of your sector i can see you can have that that broader effect yeah and i privilege yeah and i and i hope as well you know, and especially, I mean, now more than ever in the last six months, you know, I, I keep trying to articulate this and I'm not sure if I've quite got it right yet, but I'm, you know, and I'm by no means the new generation, but sometimes I kind of think there's a lot of leverage in being this new generation of like early career researchers or, or Mm -hmm. academics or independent. I was listening to an Angela Davis talk the other day and I think she just said we really need critical scholars or we need kind of Mm. you know intelligent scholars in every discipline and everywhere just to keep asking questions and be clear and be precise and I guess um I do think that there's a new I like to think there's a new wave coming through of people that realize that the answer isn't in just being in one institution but in in I'm trying not to use the word networking but yeah, in, in like just dipping and diving all through and across your sector yeah. and the the way that the way that you work and just and connections coming at random moments and you not realizing yeah. and then you go back and revisit them five years later and I think there's a lot of power and energy in that. I think it takes a lot of work and I think it's chronically underpaid that way of thinking at the moment <laughs> and underappreciated. But um, I'm kind of just keep trying to think. No, I'm we're pushing a new spirit here. So yeah. And that circles back to your previous point around, you know, having your kind of matrix of what do I say yes to, what do I say no to, where do I see the value, but also having that 
in the back of your head that there is this sometimes you don't know the outcomes of things sometimes you just go towards them because there's a general interest or an instinct or <laughs> a contribution that you want to make as well as the profile and the the connections um but I think what you're explaining is we talk about portfolio careers um, mm. and it's it's kind of this intersection of gig economy, although I know gig implies a little bit more like, um, you know, hourly rate, daily work and maybe just fitting in in between other things. You, you'd have a better definition. But I think there's, there's, there's a concept that gig work is like, um, you know, if you can get it, then you'll take it as an interim to something else. Is, is a connotation, whereas a portfolio, in my mind, I think a lot of people can think about a portfolio in terms of something that they've constructed and brought together in a purposeful way mm. and it has components and elements and different project-based work, but it's all accumulating towards their personal goals as opposed to just um, transactional work. There is actual interest, value, contribution, as well as payment. <laughs> so, I think a portfolio, like anything, obviously that's lending for more of a financial world, but a portfolio has has more, it takes management because you set out with an intention and then you bring it all together to create the right recipe, you know, of your risk factors and your, you know, your interests. Um, you have to nurture it over time, um, but it, it, it actually has a lot more satisfaction, I think, because you, you're across more. So do you see any distinction in that? You've obviously delved quite deep into the gig concept and, you know, maybe this idea of portfolio is, is new to you, but how, how do you reflect on that with your own experience, gig versus portfolio concept? Do you know, I, I think for me it's what we're talking about in a way is confidence. Like mm. I think it's only really in recent years where I've realized I'm cultivating a portfolio and I call I think sometimes now I kind of when I'm applying or pitching or something I'm like unique portfolio of academic and um, practical or industrial experience you know but I think I think I have a tendency having you know like all of us had to just to do a lot of work for money in order to survive to keep studying to pay the rent etc etc I have a tendency to you know to probably think about myself sometimes as a gig worker and as precarious. Mm. Um, and that's, you see, I, I'm really cautious about saying that because that's that would then make, make it sound as though I've got something against gig work. And I really don't. I actually think in a way that the systems, and this is stuff I do not know enough about, I'm about to say it, but I think like, you know, for example, like the UK government and the way they consider gig work now um they they talk about it in quite disparaging terms as like a certain Mm. class of people do that kind of work and I just think that's hugely incorrect and wrong and in a way maybe we need to and this is such a classic like academic thing to say in order to sidestep the question but maybe we need to get away from words like gig work and portfolios because part of me feels like what we're talking about is is the future of work it's how we're all gonna have to work and actually you know, I, I think it's the most accurate way of working for the complexity of the world that we're living in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it Yeah, you're right. I am trying to, I'm trying to touch on that fact that there are connotations for gig and, and how you re, reclaim it um, and yeah. reposition it in people's minds. But, uh, yeah, you're right. That could just be an academic, you know, <laughs> and it could be a defensive move on my part as well. I, I want people to feel 
pride in the work that they do and sometimes yeah. that is just labeling it and so and, and I think pride comes from contribution and purpose and understanding and, and choice as well and, mm-hmm. and I think that that's the thing a lot of the time with gig work people there's a connotation that it wasn't a choice or it was my choice of last resort as opposed to how do I actually feel a sense of, and I know plenty of people in the gig economy who are immensely proud of the work they do and they professionalise that work. So I I just don't know how to break it down so that, as you say, it is the future of work. It's, it's, yeah. (laughs) I I don't know if it helps. I feel like there's something about how we value different types of work here, which is still Mm. just not being figured out very well. And and I want to get better at talking about it. And I think when I was talking about the podcast, it was kind of the same thing. It's like, I mm. value the work of that volunteer as, you know, and I and I think society should value that work as much as the work of the chief executive making big strategic decisions. And, you know, we see it nowhere kind of better than in the healthcare sector, where obviously the nurses get paid barely anything or or the kind of or the home workers get paid very little and the doctors get paid really well and i i think maybe what's really exciting about the gig economy and what's happening there is it's challenging us to con- reconsider how we value different types of work you know i you know the mm. number of times i've gotten a taxi and the guy turns out to be doing a physics degree and is trained to be an yeah. engineer or all this other stuff and i'm just thinking how how dare we have any preconceptions about what people choose to do and why and and I guess and sort of to end the rant <laughs> I spent oh, you know well, on a daily day too. <laughs> <laughs> normally around that 11 a.m moment where I'm like what the hell am I doing is then preceded by another moment where I'm like I think I would be happier not trying to chase the idea of getting paid for my brain and for these like great ideas I'm going to come up with but actually to make someone a damn good cup of coffee and then be able to read a really good book on my lunch break you know and 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 I've you know I don't know it's something about where do I you know I've I'm I've kind of totally bought into this need to be this yeah, someone with this illustrious portfolio career. Totally understand. And that's why I think even maybe the line isn't between gig versus portfolio versus permanent versus whatever, but I think there's still a value in society that's going between knowledge work and what we would at the moment call frontline work, even though those aren't a perfect, you know, opposing dichotomy. But mm-hmm. knowledge work versus manual work maybe is the way to explain it. And I do think that frontline workers have had a huge boost in recognition and, and appreciation, yeah. which has not filtered into payment or, you know, anything else really. <laughs> but at least there is a, I don't know if they do anything similar in the UK, but around my house, um, every night at 8pm, there's a howl. <laughs> the people come out on their balconies and they howl like wolves as appreciation <laughs> for the frontline workers which for me with a kid asleep downstairs is not appreciated. But And I'm sure for some frontline workers who are doing shift work, they're probably not keen on it either. But but I think like this this is my community trying to say on a daily basis we want to recognise you. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if there's a shift in like how we value knowledge work versus manual work, but I think that's what you're saying there as well is like, would I feel like I I maybe chased knowledge work thinking that that was where my satisfaction and that I had this capability. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should fulfill myself. There's also a societal value piece that plays over the top, but then would I actually feel maybe less stressed, but equally as satisfied and have time to do things that I relish if I was in a 
you know, not a knowledge worker job? <laughs> I, don't, I think it's well, a really legitimate question. Yeah, and maybe that's why we're, the time we're living in is quite exciting because how things, how are things going to shake and out? If I can just interject, I'm sorry. I want to make sure that I don't say as though somehow not knowledge work is leisurely and that you have more time to do <laughs> things. Like a complete recognition of the challenge. Hopefully that comes across. Of yeah, sorry to interject. Oh yeah, and and well yeah, and as an aside, the, the research I'm doing at the moment, which is in about digital workers in museums, mm. that's knowledge work, but it's for the most part, hugely exhausting, tiring, not pleasurable in any way. So it's it's complicated. I, what I was going to say, I, I guess, was because of what's happened and because of how little, how how much fewer jobs are going to be around of kind of the prestigious, formerly prestigious sense post-COVID, I wonder whether that might challenge this value a bit. I'm just thinking about all the students to come out with degrees now. I mean, most of them are going to end up having to take gig gig work yeah. um, for better or for worse. And I hope, I hope that that's a kind of force for positive change and considered in a good light rather than as something that everyone's desperate to squirm their way out of as quickly as possible. Like yeah, this, this is an opportunity for us to really reconsider how we value the different types of services people do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe the role that government plays. I mean, depending on the mm-hmm. country that you're in and, and the level of involvement in government, um, I think there is a moment where government needs to think about that shift in the workplace and how they're protecting young people <laughs> from yeah. um, maybe some capitalist forces that will come in from the other side as well. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the shift, how it all <laughs> how it plays out, I completely agree. And I think in the past people might have at this moment, um, if you were exiting, for example, your bachelor's or your master's, would have been a moment where they thought, oh, I'll dip my toe out into the workforce and it's not working for me, so I'm just going to go back into the academic world. But actually we're seeing, uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts because you've got, uh, you know, three feet in that camp as well. Um, in the past I think we would have seen, people turn towards degree programs. Um, but I know that the university sector is really retracting at the moment and seeing, mm. like, okay, people are questioning international fees. They're questioning, you know, if I'm doing all this by Zoom, am I really getting $40,000 worth of value, et cetera? Um, and so maybe going towards micro-credentialing online or, or non-degree programs where they perceive I can get the skills, I can get the knowledge, but I don't need the piece of paper. And so, again, a shift in that what is the service that the universities are offering and how do people either turn towards them or not at this moment in, you know, in history? So do you have a sense of like what's happening in that space? Yeah, it's, I mean, do I have a sense? It seems, yes. Big question. Solve it. I mean, Sophie, I, think, I think, I know, right. Okay. Five minutes and yeah, university yeah. sorted. Um, no, I think um, terms just starting now. So, it's so I feel like if we had a conversation in a month I might have a more solid answer for you because already so universities have been under so much pressure all summer to make sure they have in-person teaching time this Mm. autumn because they believe rightly so that a lot of students don't want to pay the fees unless they're getting some sort of contact time that's not just on zoom Um, So I work for a couple of different universities, all of which are really pushing this in-person time. And it looks as though at the moment there isn't, in the UK anyway, there hasn't been much of a drop in university Mm. deferment. 
However, I have a feeling that by the time we get to Christmas, a lot of people will defer. Mm. Um, And even today in Scotland, there's been this big thing about three universities, Aberdeen, Glasgow, um, somewhere in in Dundee. There's been huge COVID outbreaks because of students returning and going for their first Uh, year. So, mm. but I think the bigger question about, I, I mean, and this is kind of putting my colours on the, to the mast, but Mm. I think universities as knowledge institutions have been undergoing a crisis for a long, long, long time. Like Mm. they've not, and I think we may have discussed this before, but I just don't think that they have, they're getting better, but they're by no means on the whole, and this is huge generalization as someone who works as a researcher in a university have been very good at responding to real life change. Mm. I think um, the pace of life is so fast now and I think universities and researchers really struggled to keep up with monitoring that and making then like, you know, profound claims about what that means. And I think because of technology and how it has just opened up all these amazing possibilities for learning and for knowledge and for engaging. And I was thinking of that word when you talk about micro credentialing, I was thinking of the word auto uh, I always say this wrong, Auto, autodidacticism, right? It's teaching yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how, you know, you could have way more rigorous, I don't know, English literature degree if you've done it yourself. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I don't necessarily believe that because I do think there's so much, there's so much power in dialogue and in conversation mm. and in mentoring and in having really difficult, gnarly professors and teachers sometimes that say no you like pick holes and everything yeah but at the same time I do think universities are at a profound moment where they have to decide what their relevance is and I think COVID has just escalated that as a set of questions and what what it's revealed ultimately more than ever is that universities are just massive businesses and they need to stay afloat yeah and exactly so, and some have bigger trusts and others yeah I think like in the corporate world we're all doubling down on experiential learning it's I think mm-hmm. you see these massive shifts in uh, digital learning and, and they're all content plays and I think people are realizing that like a knowledge dump and just having access to skill databases does not build capability mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it's a part of it and so I think reflecting that into the university sector and all the things that you're saying it is so much about the experience it's about being on campus it's about like you know sitting in tutorials it's about having the interplay of minds and the relationships that go between so I wonder instead of I know I've seen so many universities move towards like what's their digital resources and how do they deliver for a modern world and a remote learner and all that kind of stuff but maybe it is about the other way of actually just doubling down on the experience of being mm-hmm. on a campus and mm-hmm. <laughs> and the people who you get to meet there. Like that would actually be quite radical in this day and age. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. think, and you you made me think actually just yesterday, um, I had my first session with the students I'm going to be teaching at Kingston School of Art this year and working mm-hmm. on the BA in uh, Creative and Cultural Industries. And I'm teaching first year's history and context the creative industries and we did this um we used the mentimeter app to um to get a straw poll of what they most wanted from the course and from from this ba and the three biggest words this was 90 students the three biggest words that came up on the screen were confidence was the biggest one 
and then creativity and networking and then reading. I, I, I was kind of like, yay, reading. That was fourth. Um, and I just thought that was so interesting. So actually, like exactly, I think you're right about doubling down on the experience. They're not really, they, you know, we can, we can access information anywhere. Yeah, Is it? Character. Yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. um, ca- it's those tools that we need in order to do something useful with information in order to turn it into knowledge, like confidence. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what those students, I mean, then that's amazing. They're 18 year olds and they'd already recognized that that's what they really needed. Um, it's well, whether, I think that generation yeah. as well, sorry, it's just because, yeah. I mean, they've, they've grown up in the whole life of Google. So they know that they've got knowledge at their fingertips. They don't have mm-hmm. to retain things. It's about how they take in information, how they metabolize it and what they do with it. <laughs> so I think they're probably a perfect generation to know like, all right, great. I want some experiences. Tell me some stuff that's useful, but actually how how do you give me the the attributes to perform with the information that I can get easily (laughs) yeah so yeah how interesting Uh, this generation what are they they're zed (laughs) so we'll get get used to them doesn't that sound amazing (laughs) yeah yeah Anyway, they're coming down the. So tell me about Culture Plan B. This is a, a link that you shared with me about a podcast oh, that you've been listening to by David Job. So what, what's yeah. compelling for you about this series at the moment? I guess I, I, I picked that to profile just because I think um, there's been a lot of noise in the culture sector since COVID happened. There's been a lot of outrage, understandable outrage. There's been mass redundancies, mass furloughing, cuts left, right and centre, you know, um, a real, you know, kind of by necessity devaluing of the role of arts at the moment in society and for good Mm. because everyone's obviously so worried about health. Mm. Um, And what I liked about Culture Plan B, and it would kind of be like what, what I think is exciting about the turn in the sector at the moment is that David Jubb, who was formerly Artistic Director at Battersea Arts Centre in London, which is kind of quite renowned for doing quite a lot of grassroots activists, actually, like um, kind of work from scratch, working with lots of different marginalised communities or different different community groups, um, is that he brings together a whole load of different individuals and very small kind of two person run organizations in this podcast that talk about how culture can take place and continue to be created outside of our big institutions and in uh, the UK there's been all this fuss around there was a, an announcement um by our culture secretary Oliver Dowden of a 1.57 billion pound culture emergency fund mm. but it was predominantly in the announcement um laid out to support the crown jewels so the big institutions so the the national oh, theater and not the, the actual crown. crown jewels i was like <laughs> do they need more <laughs> no, protection okay yeah. I no yeah they're fine we probably they should <laughs> yeah. if we could add the crown jewels to the mix in this fund we hey we could, who knows what could happen <laughs> yeah, um i'll just sow my anti-monarchy seed there but um <laughs> so, there's only so many buyers i'm not sure where you'd uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> what we're gonna do value. um but the the emphasis was on saving big cultural institutions and not helping support all these individuals Mm. and so David Jobs come along and he has interviewed lots and lots of different individuals about how we could reapportion this money in different ways and I just think it's really great because it's a series of really pragmatic thought through 
ways of thinking about how this moment, a bit like what we were talking about universities, is an opportunity to really question in a new way why the culture industry has been so elitist in the past mm. and hasn't included as many people as it could. And how is this time when maybe institutions are closed an opportunity for us to think about what individuals and communities are capable of in a different way. So it's, mm-hmm. I just, I really like it. And also I like it that it's just a set of, it's not just a, it's a set of questions. It doesn't try and come up with millions of answers. And I think at the moment there seems to be a desperation to come up with some great, like all singing, all dancing answers to how we're going to fix things. And um, I actually don't believe that's very useful because we're, it's so uncertain. The times are so uncertain. Yeah. So, yeah, I think just to have more and more conversations for me is as good as it's going to get for a while, and he does that really effectively. Yeah, that's really interesting. Here, I will definitely check that, and we'll put mm-hmm. that link in the in the show notes as well. But I think I agree with you. Anyone who has a very certain opinion about anything right now makes me very skeptical because <laughs> I think, okay, well, let's all throw it into the mix and discuss. And, and there's definitely things you can learn from history to consider, but there is no precedent for how to do this well that doesn't mean uh, the, the flip side of it is that we get paralyzed and don't do anything so um but yeah it's, it's i i agree with you i just like throwing ideas into the mix and stirring it around seeing what yeah. we seeing who who whose perspectives come to the forefront so thank you for sharing that culture plan b yeah all right so i'd like to ask you some rapid fire questions mm-hmm. um just to you know make sure that we wrap up and I've really valued it. I just feel like there's so many directions that we could have taken this conversation. So I'd actually <laughs> love to speak again. Uh, you know, I'm sure that this will be an evolving, um, yeah, you know, evolving conversation because yeah, there's a lot happening in your space. Because <laughs> I was thinking, Alex, as you were talking, and I maybe it was kind of, but I was thinking as we were talking about the students and like what you know them wanting confidence, and I was thinking about what I would, what I would say based on some of my experiences that I, you know, mm. and how you cultivate that confidence. And it goes back to what you were talking about first about decision-making and saying yes. And, and it's really hard, you know, sometimes I get, I get, I don't feel emotional right now, actually. But, but I get really worked up about this stuff sometimes because it's just, I think what we, I think it's about time. If I've, if I've kind of mm. learned anything yet, it's just that, you know, building confidence in what you do and how you do it just takes loads of time. And it's all about being really nice to yourself and about mm. um, also realizing that if you miss an opportunity, there'll be another one. I, I kind of really yeah. think that sometimes it's like, it doesn't need to be grab all the time. So yeah, anyway, I was just thinking about what I would say to those students who were like, right, just I'm here. It's my first term. Just give me some confidence. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just a <laughs> sprinkle, just award me some. But it's, yeah. it's definitely, it's an accumulation, isn't it? But uh, mm. I think you have to be out in traffic to, mm. um, mm-hmm. to get it as well. I mean, I agree with what you're saying about there will always be another opportunity, but at the same time, if you don't kind of, take chances and grab things and do get out into the world you're not just going to get confident in sitting in your bedroom yeah. or wherever and, <laughs> yeah and actually and then now I'm reneging on what I said because I, I think I think that's yeah. just I guess I I say that just in case you miss the opportunity and you reflect but I guess I agree and like I always just think that what's the worst that could happen is always the kind yeah. of main way I think about stuff so like, what's the worst that that's can a happen? perfect question to ask yourself I know but it's and I think asking it with friends as well because mm-hmm. when you sit and you ruminate about things it's like what's the worst that can happen well I could be embarrassed or someone could 
I could say the wrong thing or I could look silly or whatever. But when you say it with friends, like what's the worst that can happen? You say those things out loud, they're kind of like you'll look silly, like, okay, you'll survive that. Will you die if you look silly? Like, And it's not to downplay that people have, you know, self-preservation kind of instincts. But at the same time, I think sometimes you ask yourself your question, what's the worst thing that can happen? And it's not until you actually hear your voice say the answer that you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe that's not going to be the end of the world. It might be the end of my small personal world, but, like, I will live on from that. So, yeah, get out amongst it. <laughs> and Yeah, and, and actually the number of times, and we haven't really gone into this and that's totally fine not to have done, but the number of times I've applied for a job and not got the job but still yeah. got a ring back and offered like a small amount of work off the back of it and then got to know, got in that way. And I'm always amazed by the worst that can happen, there isn't the worst. It's just that that, that person or group or individual uh, organisation now know your name and they know what you're capable of. And yeah, in a way you just got to keep being brave about doing that. You're in the database and it's a really good call out because we find that so often, you know, there's a gender difference between mm-hmm. people who apply for jobs when they're fully qualified or overqualified versus people who apply, you know, when they're a little bit less not qualified. And that's not to say all men and women are, are exactly the same, but you want to be in that camp of people who say, maybe I'm 80% qualified for this, but I'm going to have a go <laughs> because you don't know what, the competition looks like and you don't know what the unique cultural factors are there's people who are overqualified for jobs who aren't getting calls back because who knows so mm-hmm. if you're not in it you're not going to get any <laughs> there's no harm in putting your resume forward I, I totally agree and the other thing that I'd say is that so often these days it's not an actual human on the other end who's receiving your <laughs> profile so you're yeah. not going to offend someone's AI by like <laughs> throwing your resume into the algorithm <laughs> um so why not have a have a go I like I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was actually one of my first rapid fire questions. Oh, good. Sorry. Was, okay. Right. I want my 20 year old self to know that. And you've also <laughs> given a little bit here, but anything else you want her to know? Oh, I think it would be that it will be okay. <laughs> mm. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I think I was just, and I still can be such a ball of anxiety. And it's like, it will be okay. Like the, the dreams will come true. Yeah. Well, I, I, now we have that recorded, I can actually send it back to you. You can replay it to your 36-year-old self and your 40-year-old self. And your... Please. <laughs> it works out. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so my role model is? Oh, gosh. Now, this is a really hard question. Sorry, I know mm. it's supposed to be quick fire. I find role models. You can models mash a few so people together if you want. I find really it's hard to just have one. <laughs> okay, so so one of my role models is the author Iris Murdoch because, and she's dead now, but uh, she was really prolific, as you may be aware, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. She just writes the most amazing books. And she the way she thinks about people and how they interact with each other I just find really really inspiring and cool Mm. so Iris Murdoch um I think people who I think are doing really good work at the moment gosh Alex it's really hard you know I think people that are close to me probably you know people like my boss who I mentioned Ross Parry there's a lot of the ways he does stuff, which I'm 
I'm not going to follow. It's, you know, it's almost like he's not my role model, but the the rules which I watch him carry out every day are ones which I'm like, oh, okay, I see how he did that. So I could break mm. those. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd have to, that's really bad. Maybe in not having a role model is one of the reasons why I have such a scattergun approach to my own work sometimes. I think it's really tough. I also find that question hard and, Sometimes I look to fiction for characters that I think that that persona or that style or that way of approaching something was my was my new benchmark. Um, yeah. But I think it's really hard to have any one person who's your. So it's a trick question. Don't worry about you. <laughs> I mean, I've thought of one more actually, as you just said mm. that, which was um, you may have heard of the BBC drama that's just come out. Um, I may destroy you. It's had a lot of press over here, and it's by a woman no. called Michaela Cole, who's a black young woman actor. I have heard um, her interviewed. Yeah, and she, was she assaulted? Was that the the, um, the yeah, well, I, don't, I, don't, yeah. I actually don't know what happened in real life. It may well, but it's a drama series. I just highly, highly recommend it. Mm. Um, and it starts off with she is drug raped. And then the whole series mm. is about how then she recollects what happened and then deals with yeah. it. But she does it in it's such based a... based on her real life story. I've heard her interviewed, actually. Yeah, it's a really... She's an incredible, a great role model as well. Yeah, and in terms of turning pain into creative output, like it just it's sort of mind-blowing it's one of those things where you finish watching it and you're like wow so everything she just did I kind of I want to do that with my own life that's how I'd like Mm. to process stuff so yeah yeah. you know she's actually writing producing directing doing her own hair and makeup like that whole show is evidently just a it's Mm. not a one-person show by any means but she's she's she has so much (laughs) um yeah, if I find that um, that podcast, I'll shoot it to you. But I haven't actually seen the show, but I know the character that you mean. And yeah. I think to be able to turn um, trauma and tragedy into art as a personal reflection, um, well, gosh, what a, what a challenge because that could yeah. be you re-traumatising yourself or it could be you making other meanings of, like, society and life and, yeah, gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not a not a not an enviable situation, is it? But definitely a lot to reflect on in that one. Yeah, no, yeah, I I agree. But then I think that um, but then there's something so powerful about bringing the personal into the professional, mm. and I think mm-hmm. I try and do that a lot more. And I think that's why I get quite emotional about my work sometimes because I feel like there's more resting on it than a job. It's like something I so deeply care about. It's to do with yeah. Who I am, how I built, how I believe relationships should play out, and institutions should play out, and yeah, and I and I yeah, and I think that's why she was so Michaela Cole was so expi- inspiring because she kind of she wasn't afraid just to say this is who I am, and this you know, and, and this means so much on so many levels. Like as a kind of yeah. artwork, it's amazing. It's it's really really amazingly produced and put together thing. It's beautifully scripted. Yeah, it was kind of, it was fearless, I think. And that's mm, why. Yeah. What a great word. Yeah. It's a challenge. It's, it's something to really think about because um, so often I think people are looking for purpose and passion and alignment in their work. Um, and at the same time, you know, that's when, that's when we do our best work, as you're saying. It's like, I really care about this. It's something that I want to, like, your, your career can be a vehicle to express different contributions about yourself and different things that you're trying to achieve through 
And at the same time, sometimes you can get enmeshed in it. <laughs> of like, where does where do I begin and my job ends? And the, so I think it's a, and sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes you are, your work is a part of you. So it doesn't have to be perfectly dissected. But coming back to that little, um, you know, if I can call it a fantasy, and, and I say that not because it's not reality, but because it's an alternate universe. If we come back to the Sophie who makes a great cup of coffee and gets a lunch break and sits and reads a book, <laughs> um, there's something in that fantasy about not being quite so enmeshed in work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like being able to do something really well and perform at a job, but also be able to step away from it and do other things about yourself yeah. <laughs> that are important as well. So. So, yeah, I agree with, with Michaela, like you, you can see when somebody is having a true moment of expression through their art form or through their, their profession and at mm. the same time, like, God, that must be exhausting. Like when does, when does she turn off? Can she go to sleep and do other things? Can she just go to the shops and not be <laughs> in her life? Like it's a, yeah, it'd be hard. <laughs> and that's, well, watch it because there's this amazing, there's a few right. episodes, okay. but there's a, that she, she deals with that. She kind of deals with right the kind of success of her own persona and how like mm. that she sort of has a breakdown because of how prolific her social media following is and all of that. So it's quite, and I agree with you, you know, it's so, you know, there's me saying, right. Yeah. I prefer to be a barista and, you know, have a really nice egg sandwich on my lunch break and read Iris Murdoch. But at the same time, <laughs> I know that that's, you know, that's not, that's not, that's me not asking what's the worst that can happen mm. so, yeah. so you take risks you get you enmesh yourself at the risk of really caring deeply doing something putting your emotions on the line as you said you you, you get into that state sometimes because you really care and sometimes it's nice to not care because <laughs> it's less stress but then we put ourselves back in that really caring space because it's yeah like there's something driving I, I totally understand mm. um Thank you. Interesting. So my next question, my dream for the education system is. Oh. Mm. Oh, I think it would just be an equality of access at every mm-hmm. level. Yeah. From the year yeah. dot, from the beginning, right the way, all the way through equality of access. I just think that's what's not happening on so many really complex micro levels at the moment as well. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I've studied quite a lot around arts and how arts is being fallen out of the curriculum. So I mean, equality of access in that sense. But then also I watched a documentary the other day about how only 3% of students at Cambridge University are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So I think a quality of access at every level of the system and that, you know, I was really privileged because I went to an all girls grammar school. Um, but what we didn't have was we weren't instilled with very much confidence in ourselves, you know? So again, it goes back to all that stuff. There's, there's, we were given a very kind of by rote type of learning and fed mm. into the Oxbridge factories. So yeah, quality of access would be it. I think that's really, really lovely. If I were mentoring other women in my professional space right now, I'd want them to know that. Well, maybe let's go with what I just said about Michaela Cole, which is don't be afraid of being, don't be afraid, <laughs> don't be afraid, but just try and practice fearless. Practice fearlessness. But also camaraderie, camaraderie, Mm. I think. Mm. I feel like 
I have met quite a lot of women leaders or people that are working their way up to top that actually don't take other women with them. It's mm. a big problem, I think, and it doesn't get talked about very much. Um, so I think it would be be fearless, like own it, own own what you care about in all the ways that Michaela Cole does. But also don't don't forget about all these other women who are around you and helping them be fearless as well, I guess. Yeah. As corny as Make that boats, boats rise with the tide. What's the, yeah, I like that. And then finally, my gift to the next guest is. Oh, okay. That's so good. Um, gift to the next guest. Oh. Hmm. I'm trying to say something that wasn't said to me, so let's think. Uh, <laughs> I think. Too profound on the spot, yeah. <laughs> um. I think go with the flow mm-hmm. and, and, and just embrace embrace the journey of chatting with you, Alex, and seeing what direction it goes in and just like the journey's the destination and just, you know, seeing what comes out and actually seeing, I mean, this is bad, but like seeing it as a journey of self-discovery as well. You know, you've helped me even think about how I feel about activism and whether maybe I should use that label a bit more confidently and you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's kind of use it as a journey of self-discovery as much as just a journey, like a, a lovely conversational journey, I would say. Fantastic. I'm so glad. I've got the, our next guest is a Korean Canadian entrepreneur, female who's based in Vietnam, who has a beauty product um, wow. that she's launched for, you know, because Koreans have this stereotypically wonderful approach to facial care <laughs> um, in yeah. terms of skin, skin products and things like that. So I will let her know. I think oh. she's going to be really interesting. Her name is Vivian, so I'll pass that forward. <laughs> oh, amazing. Oh, yeah, that sounds really cool. God, you must be having such fascinating – I am. Like, you never know who you're going to speak to next. And I mean, it's the same with the work that you do, right? Like you get into so many different different – different parts of the world and different little factions of thought yeah 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 I think and that's something I didn't say earlier but that really helped when I was doing that Brighton podcast was um I started thinking of everyone as a walking encyclopedia and it really helped like when you just suddenly realize like we're all vessels it's such weird you know the yeah weird amounts of kind of passions and knowledge and all sorts of cool stuff that you just yeah but you have to ask the questions and I think that's beautiful Mm -hmm vehicle of a podcast is Mm -hmm. to give everyone a license to just ask questions and I'd like to take this forward of not just within a podcast but to have people say oh if everyone's a walking encyclopedia how do I open that up (laughs) um what is the because you don't just walk down the street and ask people what's your perspective on you know the education system in this country or how do you mentor a female leader but until you get into you know a really pointed you know opportunity like this then you don't unpeel yeah that's so true lovely gift yeah Mm, mm. so I've really enjoyed it thank you Mm, I know we could could have talked on very many different topics and gone in a lot of different directions but what we did was a pleasure so thank you yeah oh no Alex you're welcome thanks so much for asking me welcome to the real work a podcast about opening access to career success and workplace belonging for everyone Presented to you by the team at Lantern Rouge. 
Through these community conversations, we want to learn and share how careers actually work and how we show up for each other in all manners of professions, unpacking the experiences that shape us and how we can each play a role in designing our future of work. Here is your host, Alex Lamb, an organizational psychologist and the chief executive of Lantern Rouge.